A reading from Zephaniah. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you home, at the time when I gather you, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The word of the Lord, a reading from Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. The gospel for this third Sunday in the season of Advent is found in St. Luke, the third chapter, beginning at the seventh verse. Glory to you, O Lord. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply, he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming 
I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Good to be back with you here at Bethania after this rough time that many of us have been through. And we pray that our time together may grow in frequency and in numbers. To the words of this gospel reading that I just read for you, I'd like to add a second reading. This unusually from a non-Christian source, from the antiquities of the first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, who was a near contemporary of St. Luke, the author of our gospel. Josephus writes, but some of the Jews believed that Herod's army was destroyed by God, God punishing him very justly for John called the Baptist, whom Herod put to death. For John was a pious man, and he was bidding the Jews who practiced virtue and exercised righteousness toward each other and piety toward God to come together for baptism. For thus it seemed to him, would baptismal cleansing be acceptable if it were used not to beg off from sins committed? but for the purification of the body when the soul had previously been cleansed by righteous conduct. And when everybody turned to John, for they were profoundly stirred by what he said, Herod feared that John's so extensive influence over the people might lead to an uprising, where the people seemed likely to do everything he might counsel. He thought it much better under the circumstances to get John out of the way in advance before any insurrection might develop than for himself to get into trouble and be sorry not to have acted once an insurrection had begun. So because of Herod's suspicion, John was sent as a prisoner to Machaerus, the fortress already mentioned, and there put to death. So far, the reading from Josephus, the historian. Last week in church, we were introduced to this fiery prophet named John, who appeared in the wilderness like the prophet Elijah of Old Testament times. I remember several years ago when I was in my last parish in Los Angeles, viewing at the Getty Museum up the hill, a nearly full-size striking icon 
from the Mount Sinai Monastery. Icons were being displayed at the, at the Getty for some time. As well as a remarkable smaller icon of John himself, whom I saw depicted as an emaciated character clad in animal skins who looked like an escapee from the anorexic ward at nearby UCLA Hospital. Last week, we heard John spouting the words of the prophet Isaiah about a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. In today's reading, which immediately follows last week's in Luke's gospel, it becomes clear that John is himself this voice crying in the wilderness. And today we learn just what the message is that John was proclaiming that led the crowds to flow out to him from Jerusalem and to submit to his dunking them in the River Jordan. For John, as this passage from Josephus reveals, was something of a religious rock star in his day. Meriting the historian Josephus' notice to an extent that John's younger cousin, Jesus, never would in the secular historians of the day. John apparently was something of a charismatic religious phenomenon. While Jesus' public impact was a much less notable one, almost under the radar. The reason I bothered to inflict that long passage from Josephus on you is that I think it gives us fresh insight on John's preaching of repentance and the kind of baptism that he practiced. A fresh perspective that may help us to see how it was that John prepared the way for the advent of Jesus whom we Christians believe to be God's long-promised Messiah. Josephus tells us that John was a pious man, and that his preaching bid the Jews who practiced virtue and exercised righteousness toward each other and piety toward God to come together for baptism. That is, in Josephus' view, the baptism offered by John was for the already repentant, those who had already gone through life change, as Eugene Peterson, translator of the popular message version of the Bible, always translates repentance. Life change. Repentance translates the Greek word metanoia, which literally means a change of mind, which leads to a change in behavior, a turning around. Baptism was simply a public verification, a sign and seal of the baptized, already achieved status before God. John's baptism, that is. John's baptism, Josephus explains, was not to be understood as a begging off from sins committed, 
but was for the purification of the body when the soul had previously been cleansed by righteous conduct. I might be wrong, but to my mind, John's baptism sounds much more like so-called believer's baptism practiced by Baptists and other so-called evangelicals, Pentecostals, for example where baptism follows one's own decision to give one's life to Jesus, or some such choosing on one's own part, in contrast to those Christians like us Lutherans, like Catholics, like Presbyterians, Congregationalists and others, Episcopalians, who believe that baptism is a sacrament, a sacrament of the church by which God makes us with the cross of Christ in the water of baptism, God's own, particularly in the baptism of infants. This makes baptism, in fact, much more like the rite of circumcision in Judaism for us who practice baptism as a sacrament of the church. Like circumcision for Jews, where newborn baby boys are officially marked as members of God's specially chosen people soon after their birth, well before they have any say in it. Now, we, while we can't simply take Josephus' word as gospel, it is not gospel, I think that the interpretation of John's baptism in Josephus squares pretty well with what St. Luke describes in today's text, where John is pictured, first of all, in a rather puzzling light as almost discouraging those who were flocking to him for baptism out in the wilderness. You brood of vipers, he shouts at them, you bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You're like a bunch of rattlesnakes slithering for fear of your skins away from a raging forest fire toward the wet sanctuary of the river where you hope to escape the flames of hell. That's the image that I think John is trying to convey. But he goes on. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. And don't tell me about your religious pedigree how you're children of Abraham, for God can make these stones at my feet better children than you, if that's what God chooses. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Hard, accusing, searing, scorching words, like the prophets of old. Words that Those who fled to John out of fear must have taken to heart, for they dared to ask him the question that we all ask when we're up against it, when we know there's no escape, no way of weaseling our way out of a desperate situation, when we're caught dead to rights, as we say. What then should we do? The people asked. Is there anything we can do? Tell us, Prophet John, 
Is there a way out? Something we can do to save our skins? John answered, Yes, there is something you can do. You can go back to your everyday lives and live as decent people. You can start by sharing what you have, the coat on your back. Likewise, your food. And Luke bothers to tell us tax collectors of all people came wanting to be baptized, asking what they needed to do. What would be the price of admission to the saving waters? And John asked nothing extraordinary. He simply advised them, Collect no more than the amount you're supposed to. And to the soldiers who came, asking, what must we do to be saved? He said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. And be satisfied with your wages. In effect, no brutality or torture or bribery. Go back to your ordinary lives and fulfill your daily vocations. Simply be good and honest tax collectors and good and honest soldiers. And Luke says, people couldn't help wondering in their excitement whether John might just be the Messiah. But sisters and brothers in Christ, you and I know that John was not the Christ, was not the Messiah, the Anointed One. By his own clear admission, he was no more than a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, to make his path straight, as he himself said, quoting Isaiah. As Luke would later report Jesus saying of John, Yes, I tell you, John is more than a prophet. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Do you get that? We are all by our Christian baptisms into Christ. Greater than the greatest of the prophets, John the baptizer. For you and I have been marked by the cross of Christ and gifted with the Spirit of God and grafted into the very body of Christ, the church, which is the foothold of God's coming kingdom in this world. The least of us, the youngest in age, the weakest of us in faith, is greater than John the baptizer. For we follow in the way of the one to come who has already come. Unlike John, who could only try his best to prepare the way for the one who was coming. To foreshadow the coming of one whose advent John could only dimly perceive in terms of the law and the prophets, of which he was the greatest.
And so John proclaimed the law at its most radical and its most urgent extreme, at the top of his voice, calling one last time for repentance, for life change on the part of God's people. And some made themselves as ready as they could for the grim reaper whose advent John warned was imminent. But the good news of the gospel on this third Sunday of Advent is that instead of the grim reaper John prophesied, who did we get but Jesus, the one who would fulfill the law and the prophets by disappointing all of our fears, by exploding all of our expectations, and by emptying himself of his terrifying godhood into the form of a little baby who grown to manhood would become the ultimate victim of the world's own terror. All for our salvation. No longer would baptism be the sign and seal of are already having made it into God's favor, of the already repentant, the already righteous, of the already pious and virtuous. But now baptism would become the gracious God-given gift of free entrance upon a life lived in the rhythm of daily repentance and forgiveness. So that the content of the behavior was much the same. A sacramental washing for which even the tiniest infant is eligible. For the baptized life is one lived amid a community of sinners upon whom the fiery spirit of God has been released to burn its way into our hearts and our behaviors, purging us of that which is evil and impure. I didn't recasting our all-too-earthen vessels that are our bodies into instruments of God's peacemaking intentions in our world. A world still marked, sad to say, with the likes of terror and judgment and war, natural disaster, and with all those counterparts of Herod who continue to hold office around the world. A world that still, to all appearances, seems hell-bent on its own destruction, as in John's day. As I always tell parents preparing for their child's baptism, be careful what you're doing. For this child of yours may well be called in her life to act in ways that not every child is. Don't think that baptism is some kind of divine insurance policy, this baby's ticket to heaven. Your child is being marked with the cross of Christ and therefore may well be called to live out her baptism in self-sacrificing ways that the world 
the world simply won't understand. For that's the promise, the covenant of God into which this baby is about to enter. To follow Christ in cross-bearing behavior. The irony is that as we wait and watch and work in expectation of Jesus' final coming again, we've still got plenty to do. But no longer do we offer such behaviors as some kind of God-pleasing act on our part, intended to earn us entrance into the company of the saved. No, for us, the order of salvation is exactly reversed. For we know that such behavior is now made possible for us because God has chosen to be gracious to us, to save us while we were yet sinners, as St. Paul would put it. And so as we find Paul from prison writing the Philippians in today's second reading, we are moved to do good, to pursue God's agenda in our world as an act of rejoicing, rejoicing for our baptism. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known before God. And then the promise we know so well. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.